Hello and welcome to Recovery Internet Radio, broadcast live and direct from Straight Stuff Studios. Sunday night, every Sunday night at 7 o'clock. Thanks for joining us. We've got a great show for you this evening. Uh, you are tuning in to episode number, you know what, I, I can't even... I can't even BS anymore. I lost count a long time ago. And we I, get up every week. Yeah. Can we just say, I said 100 last week, but we're probably about 100 still, give or take. <laughs> we're in our second wonderful year of, uh, of broadcasting and getting to share stories with some really amazing people, and that's exactly what we plan on doing tonight. So thanks for joining us. I'm going to introduce our host this week and every week, the man with the plan, Mr. Rick Atwater. The man with the plan. Yay! That's me. That's the man with the plan. That's pretty good. Yeah. I'm just, I was just thinking, um, let's see, it would be, so I think we actually started doing this in, um, I want to say, the end of February. It was a cold, dark evening in February. It was a cold and windy night. <laughs> yeah. Long, so, frosty um, winter. Yeah, so we're, we're closing in on two years of mm-hmm. doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and congratulations. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been fun. We've we've really met a lot of interesting folks and done a lot of fun things. So, welcome to the show, Straight Stuff uh, on Addictions. Our tag tonight is intervention, getting them to the door. It doesn't necessarily mean in the door, although in Brian's case maybe it does. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Sometimes carrying them. Sometimes the carrying them. Sometimes <laughs> dragging them. Whatever it takes. But thanks for joining us tonight, uh, where we are every Sunday night at 7, as Chris said, and uh, thanks to Chris for engineering this thing, um, and um, mm-hmm. thanks, Brian, for coming out on this cold evening. Well, thank you, Rick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can um, call in if you have any questions um, by calling 323-792-2977. We're always happy to answer your questions if you have any, um, and you can also tweet us live at Rick Atwater if you would rather tweet us. We can get those tweets live. Tweet, right? tweet. Yeah, I'll be checking. Okay. Chris will check check the tweets. It's just part it of my... It sounds so strange to say that, but, you know, check the tweets. Anyway, for, those, for, your, <laughs> for those kids out there, they know what you're they know they know what, what, they know what we're talking about. <laughs> and and also, <laughs> please remember to check out recoveryinternetradio.com. Oh, recoveryinternetradio.com, your source for all things recovery. Please That's visit right. us. That's right. And we will... Uh, if we're gonna do, if we do any promos tonight, we'll do them at halftime, because I really would, I really do want to talk to you, Brian, about some stuff. Okay. Um, so, I guess the first thing is, well, you and I have known each other a long time, and but hadn't haven't seen each other for a very long time, and you just started. What you you I think you emailed me, what I, uh, I don't know. About a month ago, I sent yeah. you an email. Yeah. Uh, our journey started 17, 18, almost. Seventeen and a half years ago, through yeah. an outreach call made by my mom to you, and yeah. I was out there in my alcoholism and poly de- drug dependency insanity, and you held my mom's hand, and I'm grateful for you for mm. for doing what you did for my parents while mm-hmm. I was making a decision on whether I want to live or die. Right. And uh, I bet you weren't that grateful at the time. No, I wasn't. I was I was pretty angry with you because I thought, we were getting into my. Yeah, my party material was cutting into your drinking time there. I think a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so we, yeah, and then 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 you kind of you know dropped off the map. I never really knew what happened to you, and then I then I heard from you. I think we we corresponded maybe once a while back, email back and forth once or twice, or I saw you on Facebook or something. It was about eight years ago when I when I again expressed my gratitude on an anniversary day, probably at the eight or nine mark of my yeah, recovery. Yes. Expressing and reflecting and thanking everybody that was involved in my yeah. life early on in my sobriety. And since that time, a whole lot has happened. And ultimately, I end up in the in northwest suburbs again in Chicago uh, doing things that uh, I have a passion for. And I think we're going to discuss that a little bit this evening. I, I would most certainly hope that we, we get to that. But I, I wanted to start with some maybe how how this thing unfolded. Like, maybe, okay. you know, how you, I guess this is uh, called... Uh, a little bit of experience, strength, and hope, that'd right? Be, yeah, that'd be a good Sharing where I was and yeah, where, what where happened and what I'm doing today. Yeah, yeah. Well, without going into any great detail, Rick, I had to go on a almost an eighteen year journey of uh of a mental, emotional and chemical dependency. It was yeah. a it was a long journey and it almost took my life, uh fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. But uh I can 
I can take you on a quick journey uh, early on in grade school and junior high, and it really started flaring up in high school. I, uh, I had a romance with the alcohol, mm. and uh, I grew up with a semi-functional family. It was a basic nuclear family, mom, dad, mm-hmm. sister, brother. Dad was working, and mom didn't work. We grew up in middle-of-class America, and certain things within... Family systems happen and enabling kicks in and during that time in my life I was uh, pretty insecure emotionally with some some things in my life personally and I, uh, I fell in love with the alcohol mm. and I set down uh, everything that I uh, camouflaged that I had a passion for that was the tennis racket and my uh, my passion for automobiles and Soon it turned into a passion for blondes and Miller Lite and <laughs> being 18 miles away from the right. from the Illinois border and being at that age where I could disappear over the border at 18 yeah, and was, still be in high great. school. Yeah, it was at, at my that parents time. doing what my parents needed to do mm-hmm. to keep me from going across that border by allowing things to happen that shouldn't have happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That was the precursor to, to things. But uh, I'm one of those corporate guys. Mm-hmm. And I found his way to corporate America, and I had some very enabling employers that allowed things to go on that happened in the metalworking industry. And I worked, uh, I worked in high-end corporate America for 17 years, and ultimately, uh, you said you were an engineer. I was an engineer. I, I designed uh, brick spring applications for all the major uh, foreign and American automobile companies, mm-hmm. some of which the platforms are out there. Yeah. I don't like to admit, but I was under the influence. So when you, <laughs> when you press your brake pedal, think of Brian when you're trying to stop. It's not ice, dude. <laughs> but they've been cycle test time and time again yeah. on, on track, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. We've talked to some pilots. Yeah, you can talk to the pilots. So it could be worse, yeah. But uh, I was one of those alpha-functioning alcoholics that uh, that functioned well yeah. uh, throughout a strong percentage of my life. But as ha- things happened with this disease, uh, my tolerance went through the roof and was significantly marked in high school. Uh, all my high school buddies uh, were, were down for the count when I was still looking for another 40 bucks to get another kegger and the sun's coming up. I just was right. nonstop. Yeah. Fast forward to corporate America and the tail end, the uh, the tolerance was significant and co-managing the withdrawal from the alcohol, making my way to the doctor solicitation, specifically the psychiatrist that could mm-hmm. work the benzodiazepine piece. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when it really took off at the tail end. It was a uh, like what fast... Year, what years would that be? Meaning, uh, years, like what year? Like what year was that? Like in the two, there are nineteen ninety eight, ninety six to ninety eight is when so I really just, accelerated I was just thinking down. Thinking in my mind what the what the benzo du jour was at that time. Mm-hmm. The benzo du jour was uh, clonopin, clonopin, and the Xanax. Yeah, Xanax. And it wasn't as readily available off the streets and. With the Food and Drug Administration and the loose scribing and not having to uh, solicit a doctor every 30 days to get your uh, your prescriptions on a Schedule II narcotic, I was doing the doctor game. Mm. Uh, I had four doctors that were supplying me the benzodiazepines. I'm, I'm not a stimulant drug person. I was yeah. really romancing the alcohol and the benzo, and I like yeah. that, that type of buzz. Yeah, the floaty thing. The floaty thing. Mm-hmm. I did play around with the cocaine in the eighties and mm-hmm. I didn't like that type of that type of buzz. I yeah. really found my romance with the alcohol and the benzos. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that you describe it like a romance because that's, mm-hmm. that's pretty It was a romance and it was accurate, a, isn't it? It was a romance that uh, took me on a journey of consequences and <clears throat> towards the tail end of my bottom as things happened with DUI number one and DUI number two and DUI number three and DUI number four in the matter of 28 months and Mm. going through the cycle of criminal justice system and fighting Mm. that battle of do I want to surrender and accept or do I want to keep going and eventually die or go to jail. 
You were were you in Florida at that time? No, I was in the Chicagoland oh, area. Okay. I uh, drove my corporate uh, Cadillac through my neighbor's living room in DuPage County, mm. and that was uh, DUI number one back in 1997. Yeah. And doing the geographical move that alcoholics do out of guilt and shame, and losing that high-profile job in Chicago. Uh, working with a competitor that got me down to central Indiana. So and got you out of the neighborhood? Got me out of the neighborhood, got me out of that insanity. and I. What did you think at that time? Did you think it was gonna be, that was going to make the difference? Well, you know, as we do with chameleons and addiction, is, uh, and nothing ever happened there. It was a non-event. And yeah. I'm going to have uh, this corporation pay my retention for a headhunting fee, and the moving van's going to show up, and... I'm going to move, uh, and all of that's gone. It's over. But I only lasted 30 days right. dry, and the insanity started cycling with back-to-back DUIs in one week and sitting in a uh, Cass County Jail in central Indiana with a blood alcohol content of 0.682 and 40 milligrams of clonopin in my bloodstream. That sounds like a possible world record. Mm. That's that's just tells you, tells you where my tolerance was I at guess. and where I took my addiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And eventually what happened in that county jail is I did seize and I did go into a coma. And I woke up two and a half weeks later in the psych ward across the street from the jail asking the nurse, where am I and what's going on? And her explaining to me that you shouldn't even be speaking. And uh, 20 minutes later, I'm cuffed and back in jail. How much time did you spend there? I spent one month in there without a bond, and one month later I got two surety bonds for a hundred grand. And the good old bail bondsman uh, Bruce Harris in Mid Central Indiana came and got me after he heard my story <clears throat> in the jail, and uh, he bonded me out. And a couple more court appearances under the influence and getting the uh, pressure that you need to get out of town. I did do the flight risk thing, and I left for a couple of months and now a warrant is out for my arrest and on Thanksgiving morning there's a little fax sent to my parents condo in Sarasota, Florida from my bondsman. They've got a hundred guys down there, Brian. You better uh, <laughs> enjoy your turkey dinner and get on a plane and take care of your matters and mm-hmm. that I did and once I made my way back in front of the judge they forfeited my bond and back in jail I sat for another month and a half thinking mm. about things, but I was sober at that time. Before yeah. you went in? The second time, yeah. correct. Yeah. Not permanently, though. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, long story short, that's when I decided to make the change and solicit this program that saved my life, and thinking about it with an orange monkey suit on, from Hugo Boss suits to, uh, what is that uh, gentleman that's, What's his name? Bob Barker. <laughs> All of the jail materials. From, yeah, from a nice suit to an orange suit. Orange jumpsuit, yeah. Thinking about things and getting through things. I, uh, I would you call that a judicial intervention? I would call it <laughs> I think a judicial it. intervention, yeah. correct. Uh-huh. But it was a 17-year run of uh, brutal, brutal yeah. insanity, and uh, I'm grateful that I saved my life and... Like I said, Rick, I'm grateful for you uh, working with my parents during the time that I was soliciting getting well. Yeah. But I just had to go on that 18-month. Yeah. Let's let's say you were let's in try Florida it. there for a while. Did you get you got sober in Florida, right? Well, actually, when I when I made it through my legal matters in Florida, I still had to get through one legal intervention in in Illinois. Yeah. And that's the DUI in DuPage County after driving my. Cadillac through my neighbor's living room. I made my way to Naples, Florida. I've been detoxed so many times in treatment centers, and I've been to so many primary cares and IOPs and all different levels of care. And I uh, had a very good friend of mine that I went to high school with, and I spent an, almost a year down there uh, working with my hands because I couldn't even think with my head because of the neuroscience damage I did mm. with the alcohol and the benzo piece. And, I knew I had one more consequence that I had to get through, and that's face this DUI yeah. into Page County. And I did 
do what I needed to do, and it was either go to the penitentiary for six years and serve three, negotiated it down from three to one, and I made my way to my sentencing, and I did walk away with a misdemeanor and a couple years of probation and another 75 hours of counseling, but uh, I sat in their county jail for, for 90 days. In DuPage? In DuPage. Yeah. And it was during that time I was entering uh, a school in Chicago for my CADC, Substance Abuse Basic uh, Counseling. Where did, you, where did you get that? What's, you, where did you go? I went to St. Augustine College in Chicago before yeah. I migrated into Paul University to get my education with what I do out yeah. here today. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you got your CADC? Got my CADC at uh, St. Augustine. Uh, and so, so, like, from, from the, you know, from the jail, <laughs> you know, from the jail cell in DuPage, what's the thinking? What's, I mean, let's just say you've had plenty of experience with treatment, like, mm -hmm. More more hours, you know, than we can than we could probably count. Mm -hmm. You've had plenty of experience with detox and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. So what's the, you know, I mean, everybody doesn't decide to become an alcoholism counselor from that position. Well, let me share a story with you, Rick. My parents were at a conference in San Francisco, and my grandmother from Milwaukee was down watching my sister and I. And this was when I was in the fourth grade, and. There was a social science question that was kind of psychology based on what do you want to be when you grow up. Yeah. And this is after I was acting out and painted my ceiling black and my walls red and the back Sabbath posters and the neon lights going on. And <laughs> I opened up the book and, and one question was, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. And I wrote down in the fourth grade, I want to help people. Really? So that seed, that vocation was right. set. Yeah. And it sat dormant. And my father is from corporate America and I have no resentment towards him saying you must go to corporate America and work but yeah in my in my self I've always wanted to be the type of person that wanted to help yeah and it so that was in there it was in there anyway it was deep the seed was deep yeah and it didn't germinate until 20 some odd years later and based on my life experience I decided that I'm going to germinate the seed and fertilize the seed and get educated around my experience and and help people in some capacity with substance abuse and mental health and co-occurring and things of that nature. Well, <clears throat> what I did is I got on a research team with DePaul University on extended care and it's a Paul Malloy Democratic Oxford House model and that's how I got into... Say, say a little bit something about what that is. Okay. There's a lot of people um, out there that might not understand that. So it's a peer-to-peer um, -peer, peer -peer support model of, uh, of sober living, transitional living, extended care, but basically in, in that arena it's called sober living. Uh, mm -hmm. Paul Malloy was a uh, attorney in uh, the White House that mm -hmm. had a problem with the drink and fell mm -hmm. to his knees in a dumpster behind the White House and he started getting well with four guys and they moved into a home and DC lost funding for the home that they were in and he was going through a divorce and his wife gratefully gave them the residence and they started this Oxford House group and today there's close to 1900 Oxford Houses across the country and basically what it is is a democratic peer-to-peer -peer support model of of getting well. Its tuition rate is very competitive from a price standpoint and you've got to be really motivated to want to get well and there's rules and regulations and guidelines and one of those basic big rules and guidelines don't drink and don't drug and demonstrate mm. some responsibility and will help you along the way. So and when you say peer-to-peer -peer, it's it's a it's peer-operated the, ho the homes themselves? Or Correct. They, There's a house manager that's yeah. had some tenure in their recovery. You abide yeah. to the rules, the regulations, the guidelines, and the stipulations. And the peers are at different stages and different tenures of their recovery. And where one is falling, the other peer in the home or house member, Could if you want to substitute the word, yeah. we'll pick them up. And it's a 12-step base model, AANA, Al-Anon, or Alateen mm -hmm. on the exterior. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a 12-step 
requirement that you've got to meet. And mm-hmm. so that's what you were, you, so you were involved in some research around right. that particular model. Dr. Jason Leonard and Dr. Joseph Ferrari and a group of clinical and community psychologists that were doing their PhD at DePaul wrote a grant through NIDA and NIH and got an $18 million grant to uh, do research on the Oxford House models. And during that time, they were pulling data on outcomes of participants in the home. That was one ingredient. And then we were also responsible for fighting this Fair Housing Act of 1988 on communities not wanting to have addicts and alcoholics living in their subdivisions where there was a Oxford home in their subdivision. And basically, we, um, we lobbied and fought the stereotype and the stigmatism that's associated to addiction and addiction recovery. And uh, talk about how you did that. I mean, what, like, did you talk to community groups? Did you go to the neighborhoods? Did you... We talked to the community groups, went to the neighborhoods, solicited the neighbors, actually ended up in courts on multiple occasions fighting the community on zoning and what we, what needed to be done. And did you have any luck with that? Yes, we did. Every single solitary lawsuit that we have encountered, we won. And what do you what do you what do you attribute that to? I mean, good just good lawyers, or did you have uh, God on your side, or what's the how did it work? I think once the neighborhood well here's a here here's a case in point. I started a sober living environment in Chicago called Fresh Store Sober Living. It was yeah. a 36 guy program, which is 119 beds in the city of Chicago. It's an urban model. We bought two uh, gravestones on Potomac and Rockwell on the west side of Chicago, which is not a happy place, and there was a whole lot of unhappy things going on, yeah. gang banging and drug dealing and yeah. all of that. And We buy these two properties, rehab these two properties. It was District 12 with the Chicago police set up on districts in mm-hmm. Chicago, and we were fought tooth and nail by the drug addicts and the drug dealers and the gangbangers, but specifically the people that were seeing the change in community and purchasing property. And next thing you know, there's drug addicts and alcoholics living in these homes, getting well, planting flowers, cutting grass, manicuring, pruning. And those two homes were the prettiest homes on the street. And next thing you know, community was surrendering and accepting to the stereotype and the stigma of these guys are leaving and going to work and coming home and crime has dropped 22% in a four block radius and next thing you know the the, mm. the uh, scrutiny went away yeah and is, would that be would you say that that was a common a common theme that common theme yeah. it just takes time for your neighbors and your friends and everything that you view on TV or listen to on the radio that a person that has a needle in their arm or a paper bag living underneath the viaduct. Everybody needs to understand this disease doesn't discriminate or stereotype. Right. There are every single solitary walk of life. Mm-hmm. And so the guy with the the guy with the paper bag under the bridge could be um, could be your family physician. Exactly. That's a scary thought. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, you know, you know, just for you know, just for the sake of you mm-hmm. know. So, did you? How about uh, how about um, the suburban uh, situation with that with with the Fair Housing Act, getting home getting homes in in uh, getting recovery homes in suburban areas? Were you able to do that? Well, it's still to this day. It all depends on what region of the country, uh, the state of California, up and down the the coast. Uh, and with their zoning criteria is pretty liberal. Um, there are certain sections within the state, but there are so many treatment centers in the state of Florida and with uh, GARF and JACO, and that is a uh, credentialing through quality control and what you can and cannot do. There, there's just so many sober living environments up and down the state. And throughout uh, the 17 years when that boom was accelerating and all of the research and outcomes on what happens and that was going on, and in the in New England uh, blue-collar states, uh, they were mirroring what they were doing in the state of California and state of Florida, state of Arizona started getting into the sober living, extended care, transitional living, and it became a movement, Rick. People were seeing that 
people were getting well right. or there was not that yeah. thought or premise that I've got a drug addict living next door. Right. How about how about in Illinois? What do you what do you know about the the, the climate here? In in the state of Illinois, well, <clears throat> there are uh, some pretty awesome. Uh, we call it sober living environments in in the city of Chicago. And what's happening in the suburbs now is uh, treatment uh, is really really putting a, a strong push that the bridge to getting well is through sober living, extended care, transitional living, whatever you want to call it. And, over and above the work that I do today with interventions across the country helping kids get into treatment. I started a young adult male program on 35 acres in mid-central Illinois Mm -hmm. called Invictus Woods, but still to this day you get into the upper income communities where our crisis of our economy in the last 10 years has crashed and you get people that want to give back in their own way and it's happening but it's still somewhat not accepted. You just, if you really want it, you got to get it. And you you got to demonstrate. It's, it's a, it's a, I guess it's a little bit puzzling to me that people, I think people have, I, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but people seem to have a stereotype that, you know, they, they say alcoholic and drug addict, they don't get the difference between a practicing alcoholic and a, and a recovering alcoholic, first of all. It's a pretty significant difference. And so they have the idea that there's going to be you know, people hanging around the door and drug, you know, drug deals going down in their neighborhood and all that stuff. That's what they, I think that's what they think. Mm-hmm. Is that true? That is true. And to get through that, it just, it takes time. It takes time for the neighbors that are peeking through the windows or pulling out of the driveway mm-hmm. looking for orange caps or hypodermic needles around their grass that there's a group of people living across the street that are maintaining property and aesthetics of the property probably tenfold over what they are and right. they're leaving in, in nice high-end vehicles going to work and and they're paying their bills and there are no ping slips in front of the doors for utility companies shutting power down and next thing you know they're barbecuing together and they're, they're enjoying life together and, and and that's where they're at. So that's what it takes. It just takes the it takes patience time and, and persistence and demonstration that we are people that have had a pretty insane past through addiction and the consequences of. But you need to let go of where we were and who we were, and this is who we can become. Do you know? What, I, I don't know if I talked to you about this. Do you know anything about that? This this movie, The Anonymous People, did mm-hmm. I mention that to you? Yes, it, it's, it's all across the country, coast to coast. Have you seen it, Rick? Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah, and, and that's kind of, in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, it's about the recovery movement and people seeing, you know, it's a very, doing the stigma. It's a very powerful instrument, and anybody in this audience that is listening to it, I strongly encourage you to see that movie, The Anonymous People, it, it, it's a it's a direct correlation of what we're discussing this evening, right? On on what can happen with with people of all walks of life. Let me do and a what quick, they can let me do, do a with quick their plug. lives. Because we're gonna do we're gonna do a showing of that. Awesome. We ha- we have a copy, mm-hmm. and we're gonna do a showing on the 22nd of January at the Dole Mansion in Crystal Lake in the listening room. Ah. So if you if you want you can you can just uh, just come uh, you know I'll, there'll be a flyer and I'll give times and dates of the next next week but the 22nd of January uh, the listening room and I'll and I'll make sure that the time becomes available when the flyers come out we'll we'll put it on the website too sounds good yeah the old mansion is a beautiful place yeah it is it is a cool place so I mean it'll be a great there's several other places where we're also going to show the we're going to show it at Woodstock North for parents and students, and we're going to show it one other place. I'm not sure yet. The mental health board, probably. So, I think that movie needs to be put into high school where parents yeah. and, and, and upper-end communities so they can get a good understanding the, of the, this you movement know, across the country. There's guys like you and I that have been doing the, the destigmatization mm-hmm. work if that's even a word, it sounds really good, though. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. I know exactly. For a long time, without having really had a name for it, just advocating for recovery and um, talking about the positive aspects of recovery rather than, you know, the, the down and out, uh, you know. 
And the only reason we talk about, you know, like you started, we started tonight with your story is, is to give people hope because, you know, there's people out there that have had those kinds of experiences. And here you are doing all the things that you're doing, which is which It's really a fascinating cool. life, and recovery is very cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's do this. Let's take, a, let's take a break. We'll take about five minutes. What are we going to do, Chris? What's the... I've got to give, uh, give thanks to our, our special guest co-engineer tonight, Tanya, for uh, helping select our song this <laughs> evening. <laughs> what, what do we got? We're listening to uh, a, a little track by a band called Muse. Okay. Uh, and the name of the track is called Madness. So, yeah. All right. We, we, we how figure appropriate. Out, figure out how that goes right. into the theme here. Yeah, we'll work it in in the second half. However you need it. So, All right. Thanks for being with us tonight. Enjoy the music. We'll be back with you in five.
Thanks for being with us tonight. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, if, if you if you needed to run to the run to the little boys or girls room uh, during the break, then that was that was good timing. But thanks for being here tonight with us on Recovery Internet Radio. Uh, we've been having a very interesting conversation so far, as we as we sometimes do. Uh, I'd like to get back to it here uh, again. If you if you haven't met him before, Mr. Rick Atwater will be will be guiding us this evening as mm-hmm. he's been doing. Uh, you can always reach us at recoveryinternetradio.com for all our archive shows and links. Um, please check us out. There's a link there. You can join our mailing list if you'd like to get reminders for our episodes every week. Check that out. Um, do, you wanna, do we have any promos this week? Let's just, let's just, we have a lot to talk about. Let's just go for it this yeah. week, shall we? Deal. Okay. Welcome back. Yeah. <clears throat> all right. All right. Well, what I wanted to do, like we, like we said, Brian, what I want to do is... To, you, so I know you were you were doing research work at Paul, and then you opened up your own um, recovery home in the city. It wasn't exactly my own recovery home in the city. I met a, another gentleman on 2100 North uh, Lincoln Park Alamo Club. Mm. He was lost, okay. felt deserted. Just came out of 26 in California drug court, and as you do in sobriety, you're sitting in that steel chair that you earned the privilege to have a cold ass and eventually warm it up, right? <laughs> and uh, starts, what's his connection? And I connected with this young man whose mom was a realtor in Chicago, and he was a recovering heroin and cocaine addict, and his parents had some of the property uh, avenues to, for us to get yeah. involved, and yeah. uh, my Partner, you had the model and the mind. And the model and the mind and doing the research out of DePaul. And his motivation was, I don't want to sleep with, uh, I want to start a model of uh, recovery that uh, doesn't guilt and shame a young man or uh, a young gal or adult, whatever it has to be, that I want to have pillows and TVs and nice kitchen and couch. and. You shouldn't be punished nice, for having a disease. Medium to high-end things. and. Yeah. Keep it at a very competitive price, mm-hmm. rather than me going through drug court and living with cockroaches and and, and all of that. So yeah. that was one of the precursors in our business plans mm-hmm. to give that type of uh, aesthetic environment to the recovering and people. What was the name of that place? It's called Fresh Start Sober Living. Fresh Start mm-hmm. Sober Living. Is it? And are they still up and running? Or are they, they, yeah, there's a it's a 119 bed program. There's yeah. Greystones and flats, and they also have a really nice uh, high-end home up in uh, Glencoe mm. for the business type of executive that wants to maintain his lifestyle and mm-hmm. things. And it's still 125 to 175 bucks a week. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's called Fresh Start Silver Living. Okay. And so then, so I just want to get through that part of it, and mm-hmm. then talk a little bit about because I know that one of the big parts of what you've done is interventions. Great. So while I was a student at DePaul, I really got into family systems and family systems theory and with with drug addiction and working in the treatment industry, it's all about taking a family on a journey and taking them to the point of origin in their family Mm -hmm. history to kind of discover and assess and kind of probe into why the person we're going to intervene on is not so happy and medicating with drugs and alcohol or behavior or cutting or eating or a whole grocery list of things that can happen to people that grow up in significantly dysfunctional home environments. So coming from corporate America and not having to commute to work and work in an office, that wasn't like what I wanted to do. And (laughs) when I was getting my CADC, I worked uh, in an agency on the West side called healthcare alternative solutions, Mm. uh, with the referrals coming out of 26 in California, it was a Hispanic type of uh, referral mm-hmm. environment, and I loved their culture. And mm-hmm. I, I started doing some basic counseling and the biopsychosocial assessments, and that's an assessment tool we use to mm-hmm. start to develop a treatment plan and come up with a diagnosis and a summary of what we're going to do. And it fits very well with the family system exactly. model because you get all that information about right. family and history, et cetera. Uh, but yeah. while I was a student at DePaul, I was privy to a whole lot of data sets on what treatment centers are doing across the country, whether it's 12-step or holistic or wellness or a medical model or community model, all the different models that are out there. And I stumbled across a treatment center that uh, the marketing person was in Chicago, and I actually had lunch with that per- person in Chicago. I explained to her who I was doing, where I was going, and what I wanted to do. And 
why I didn't want to work in a treatment center facilitating groups and this or that. I want to work on the acute side and get into the hot seat, get into the trenches. And 42 days later, I get that first referral and I'm on a jet plane to Manhattan. Hmm. Uh, pretty frightened, pretty scared, but knowing I've got a diploma in my back pocket and some education on models of intervention, right. family systems, systemic, the arise, the mm-hmm. crisis model, all of that in my head, and uh, I did it. And next thing you need her, seven yeah. years later, it's a few hundred cases down under my belt, and it's a passion that I have, and it's all good. So I think people would be interested to to know a little bit about what the dynamics of a of an intervention. Of, of the type of intervention. Well, actually, I have a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, we, so we've ta- we talked about all these different models of mm-hmm. treatment, and more than likely, you know, uh, most people that are listening wouldn't have a clue about what you know models of tre- what what models of treatment. You know, how how are we supposed to know what you know? It, should, should the general public know about models of treatment and what, or is there, would you, would you say there's certain types of models that fit certain types of individuals or is one better than the other or? You're asking a whole lot of questions and a whole lot of families across the country of which there's 6.5 out of 10 families that had something serious going on underneath the roof of their homes. Sure. They're seeing their loved ones not behaving properly or acting out and, Things are going on, so on and so forth. They get on the Internet. They start soliciting, where can I go for help? And they get caught up in that gosh darn treatment maze. And they don't know if people like us that are out there uh, that help a family navigate through that treatment maze and well that's that is that's what i that that's what i really exactly. want to get to you, you're you would be the kind of person that would be the general contractor for that job right so what would happen is families start hitting all of the phone numbers the 800 numbers and they're calling treatment centers and they're sharing a little bit about the family history on you know why can't i get jim or johnny into this treatment center and all of this is going on and we've done this and done that and it's like well maybe you need somebody that can step into the family and take a peek at both sides of the equation and help you what ne- sort out what needs to be done and who, exactly yeah. so basically what people like us do that help families in crisis uh, via intervention is we talk to the family get an I- understanding an idea of what's going on with the family and what's going on with the person that is medicating or self-harming so on and so forth and while all of that is going on, people like us travel across the country and visit hundreds of treatment centers and get educated on what MILU they, they work. And the more you zero in on the family history and get an understanding of what's going on in their life and where they're at in their life and what model would potentially work or what is really going on, then we start zeroing in the hundreds that are lighting up off the Internet and come up with three or four and uh, work out what we need to work out. See, because I think most people don't understand that an intervention, a person that does interventions like yourself, does a lot more than just sit in a sit in a circle and read your letter to do uh, it to. to I want to throw it out there. Son. What you see on TV with reality TV yeah, and yeah. intervention, what you see is what you see. Right. What you get with what we do, me personally, and hundreds of us that are across this country, it is very professional, it's very personal, it's very private, it's very ethical, and it's very thought through. There are literally 200 hours that go through our minds before we even approach the person that is wanting not to have help at that juncture in time and getting them sure. prepped to work through that that stage of getting them motivated and, for help and, during that and, private moment and that one and that one that one private moment mm-hmm. is what what most people think of as intervention they don't right. think of all the stuff that goes the average intervention getting to that person yeah. is 25 30 minutes but there's a couple hundred hours of work on the upfront and, and the other thing that impressed me when we, we were talking the other when we had breakfast the other day we were talking about the stuff that you, how how you stayed with the person all the way into treatment and then you stayed with the family, what did you say, eight eight months? Mm-hmm. So when you want to talk about outcomes, and I'm sure right. one of your questions is how successful are you, 
so naturally what we do is we do the assessment piece mm-hmm. and it's not a clinical it's just a hearing what's going on right families adapt to the to the insanity of the disease and they play certain roles whether you're enabling caretaking mascotting scapegoating so on and so forth that addict alcoholic has got your family so positioned and so pinned in the corner to do whatever they need to do and once you've identified what's going on with what the family's doing as a whole there's a reason why that is happening and a good intervention is getting the family to recognize what roles they've taken don't don't pivot into the person that is suffering take responsibility a little bit for what you've done to enable this mm-hmm. whole mess and nine out of ten times you don't get an interventionist in a hotel room or in a home or in an employer's office uh, to have these delicate conversations but uh, there's pre-intervention the day before I like to get and meet with the family and break bread with the family and come up with three, four key individuals and always that second individual is going to have the emotional charge on that person and come up with the model that we want to work. A lot of opiate boys uh, in their mid-twenties that are in the corporate world don't like to be thunderstruck and catapulted out. It's called an arise model of intervention where you invite that person into the meeting and letting them know that you're not leaving town for a period of time until things are thoroughly discussed, right? And <laughs> those, those are the words you use. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to thoroughly discuss a few we're things gonna with you. Thoroughly discuss. You do a, a lot of, you, you mentioned the, the, the opiate, boy, the, the young opiate boys in the corporate world. Right. Is that, is that a population that you spend is that something that you kind of that's a special right. area for you you're in this field and a lot longer than I've been in this field and a strong percentage of my interventions up until about three and a half four years ago were all pretty much alcohol right interventions and something serious that is going on across this country and that's the prescription drug epidemic yeah and the opiate epidemic and a whole cluster of things that are happening with those two and related I I related and as you know these drugs and narcotics and even the cannabis out here is so potent and powerful over and above what it's been 20 years ago and what happens in the developing mind at the early stages of of teenage and young adult life and you get these substances playing with your brain and adapting your brain and working your brain and doing things that the neuroscience of the brain can do when you're when you're doing things uh, these kids are going down uh, yeah. at a very accelerated pace the average cycle of an alcoholic in the past was 14 15 years these kids are crashing out at uh, 18 23 right nothing to look forward to in life Right. Uh, when they do the decide to, to get the bottom, well, is, is it, four it or is five so years, accelerated. Maybe, maybe not even that long. It's very scary. Yeah. 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 So you work a lot with that that population. Right. So, I like working with. Yeah. I don't know what it is, Rick, and you're probably going to ask that question. Why do you have such success working with that population? I can't honestly answer you why, with the exception that I can go to my teenage state of my brain and <laughs> in, in the blink of an eyelash and yeah you can relate I, to them i can have the gift to connect with these boys and i don't yeah. give up on these boys and you know get their hope instilled in a matter of 20 seconds when you do an intervention be very empathetic to the situation yeah you have right? to, yeah you and have to know uh, you have to know what it's like and exactly but uh, something that. that i don't do is i don't self-disclose when i'm mm-hmm. doing an intervention because how in the world is the person going to look at you when they're when they're in their insanity like i'll never be at your level so yeah it's too it's, it would be too scary for them too scary way too scary i stay right at their level and yeah. When I do the intervention, after the intervention, the family members or the loved ones leave, and that's when we have this heart-to-heart conversation on what do we need to do to get from point A to point B because certain substances out, out here today can take your life in a withdrawal, and we just navigate our day accordingly. And so we have, you know, we, we, I'm not leaving until we fully discuss some things. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Thoroughly. Thoroughly. Right. Even the key word, I like that. So I okay. guess that's setting a boundary, right? I guess it is. <laughs> it's kind of like in a gentle, in a, Man, in a very firm word, but boundary. gentle way. Yeah. And, yeah that's that's setting some guidelines here. Then. But okay, and then, so, and then you stay with, so 
and then I, one of the questions was, do you do you do the transport? You arrange for the transport? Right. Or how does that work? When I work with the family, and that was a yeah. good question, my success working with families across this country today, I don't do the pre-intervention and I don't do the intervention and leave the family in disarray or fear, anxiety, and, and all of that confusion that's happening. It's thoroughly discussed what's going to happen throughout the course of treatment, so on. So and everybody so on. knows exactly Everybody's what's going on. Everybody's on the same page. Yeah. And once I do facilitate the intervention, I will transport the patient to the treatment center and nine times out of ten it's straight to a level five detox for a period of time before they migrate into a level four which is primary and you're not going into an individual's home knowing that you're probably working with a person that's not abusing a substance that has crossed the line to chemical dependency. You pretty much know that. You pretty much know that that you're going to need a detox in some shape, form. So you know that's the next stop. And do you next do stop. that transport personally? or do I do the transport personally. Uh-huh. I work with some pretty cool treatment centers that I've got one phone and I've got a medical team real close by and I've got uh, treatment centers that greet me at the airport with their transportation. I take mm-hmm. their transportation to the treatment center and I park myself that evening in a hotel after our loved one is safe and detox and I make my way to the treatment center the following morning and I can give all of the 411 on the family history so they can get some collateral and and the first two weeks I, a good question that I'm going to answer for you is that I haven't even asked yet but it's good because you're thinking <laughs> ahead you, you work with treatment centers that are called intervention family or friendly because yeah. you bring somebody to treatment that's gone through detox the first seven days and they slide over they're not going to like their interventions too much and they're going to start challenging on I'm okay I'm shaving I'm eating I look good I feel good and this is fun, but I want to come home or I want to go back to work and I'm really angry at this guy that helped me and in treatment today, knowing in certain times with certain drugs that uh, we're working with, you're going to have that moment where the the loved one is going to want to come home and we work through that delicate moment again. So Intervention Friendly is a treatment center that wouldn't buy the manipulative drug addict saying that bad man made me come here. Exactly. Okay, just so I'm clear. Yeah. <laughs> there are those out there. The successful outcomes yeah. in what we do in recovery today with extended care models and good people like ourselves that yeah. work with the family after their loved one is yeah. engaging back into community. At, and like I said, Rick, do you see them back into or? I don't see them directly. I see yeah. a lot of it over Skyping and over the phone. And mm-hmm. you do enough cases throughout the course of time. Every single solitary family is educated in family education through with the treatment centers that I work with for four or five days. And do you stick pretty close to the ones that usually do family programs in their treatment? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's as part of the. As I have that release signed, I stay glued. Yeah, but I don't get involved with the patient's treatment, and I don't get involved with the whole family's treatment. They're and does, they, does the treatment center usually do the aftercare planning? Are you involved in we, that? That's the success. Uh, yeah. There's so much exciting things going on across the country with extended care and yeah. sober living, transitional yeah. living, and they're pretty competitive. Cool places that you can go to for a period of time, and the average good successful outcome is four to six months after primary care and yeah I stay with the family their boundaries are shifting roles are shifting they're going back to some form of homeostasis back to norm and the kids or their loved ones is going to challenge their recovery once they get back in the community and just a whole lot of things are happening do these opiate kids need a longer term generally need a longer term uh, treatment or a longer term a longer process of staying staying involved in some kind of treatment and aftercare than well, say other other addictions throughout the course of treatment and what we're doing in treatment moving forward is it's recognized and it's now a hidden secret that opiate dependent people uh, statistically are super high for relapse early right. on right, right. and also opiate dependent people don't understand what's going to hit them six eight months down the road with other post-acute withdrawal syndromes that are going to start presenting like using dreams and new cravings that are going to happen in different parts of the body uh, because of endorphins and rejuvenation of endorphins that could trigger another using episode 
So, yeah. Uh, so it's more important for them to stay involved in some kind of professional uh, treatment or some kind of treatment. Good coaching, good monitoring, yeah. good extended care, staying in a, That's why in a light wraparound, a clinical. So, yeah. It all depends on the person yeah. and, and, and where they're at. Okay, Life so you skills. see them all the way into some kind of longer term, mm-hmm. longer yeah. term treatment. So to sustain early sobriety, yeah. what we do is another therapeutic move from a primary care. We have transport people all across the country that are facilitating moves from primary care to extended care to keep our our person that is starting to think right, right, <laughs> and correct, and check, and right. So on and so forth. All right, so let's switch gears for just because we don't we don't have a whole lot of time mm-hmm. left. But I wanted to talk a little bit about Invictus Woods. Oh, okay. And your and the place that you've started here yep. in near Peoria. Invictus Woods is a 35-acre campus located in Mid Central Illinois. I had a pretty successful adventure starting fresh start in mm-hmm. an urban model, and I had the opportunity to work with a family whose two kids got into recovery through intervention and. One of the sons is facilitating some of the activities uh, on the Invictus Woods campus. And that's Nick. <clears throat> that's Nick. Hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. <laughs> so anyhow, Invictus Woods is a country model. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's what we call a soft landing. Mm. Uh, throughout the course of treatment, uh, these young adult guys uh, uh, are recognized that they can't hold recovery in, in an urban environment and they need a graduation mm-hmm. back into community at a slower pace because of things that are lacking in their sobriety as far as life skills, mm-hmm. money management, uh, just all different things mm-hmm. that happen to people that uh, aren't taken care of in, in their using days. So Invictus Woods is a 35-acre campus. Mm. Um, and I've seen pictures. It's, it's beautiful. a beautiful 5,500-square-foot yeah. Cape Cod 10-boy program. I saw the, the uh, hardwood floors that you put in with your, own, you. with your own hands. It's awesome. <laughs> it's just a 90-day yeah. step-down model, 90-day yeah. or longer. Yeah. There's structure. There's community involvement. There's, there's criteria that you need to uh, respect as far as rules and behaviors and so on and so forth. And we have our wraparound clinical around the circumference of the campus. And mm-hmm. It's a fun place to get well if you enjoy the outdoors, mm-hmm. spring, summer, winter, or fall. You've got path. You said you have... We have awesome trails around yeah. the campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick has done a great job grooming those trails. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're brand new. Just started mm-hmm. uh, accepting referrals in September and just going... And this was kind of a dream of yours, wasn't it? It was a dream yeah. of mine. I mean, it's a perfect fit. And recovery for, for is a journey, and, and my do. journey took me to the woods, sure. and yeah. and I met this really cool family, and uh, Dr. Ron Rabjohns and his wife Camilla wanted to get back to recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that family spent damn near half a million dollars trying to get both their boys right mm-hmm. uh, throughout the course of time, and I'm grateful to have them. Uh, if uh, if somebody wanted to get, what would they do? Go to the website. Invictus yeah, you could Woods? go to InvictusWoods.com. Right. And uh, the middle of January, we're going to have a newer newer website uh, with new features and things of that nature. And all the buildings done, yeah. better pictures. But InvictusWoods.com. Yeah. Okay. Or, mm-hmm. And what about the intervention side of things? What's the intervention side of things? I'm opening up a branch office in the northwest suburbs of Chicago to help with. Uh, communities uh, that are seeing on TV that no longer is the disease super potent and powerful in, in Chicago proper, and there's a need for people like us. That other side of my business is called Bridgeback Interventions. I'm mm-hmm. going to help uh, with other clinicians around the, the northwest suburbs uh, with uh, treatment placement, coordination, and intervention. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because the and drug- they, they get a hold of you by going to Bridgeback? Bridgebackinterventions.com or okay, all right. I think that that's you know at least people know how to get a hold of you. If, yeah, uh, or they can find you through or find me through you. Yeah, they can, <laughs> yeah. We'll have to get our we'll have to get our websites hooked up and yeah, do all, we can, that, do we all can that technical do all that. stuff that I don't have a friggin' clue how to do. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that'll be your job, Chris. I, you know, I, I I keep busy. You keep busy. You can do that. I, I can do that. So you think we covered most of the ground we intended to cover tonight? Well, there's always. More time down the road. 
Yeah, we'll do it again. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll do it again. I'm sure we'll be we'll be in contact. With Thanks again for having me, Rick. I'm grateful. Yeah. Again, 17 years ago we crossed paths, and I really wasn't ready to become your friend yet. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it only took 17 years. years. It only took me. You know, it's like I mean, you told so another friend of mine that had to go on a 26-year journey. That's, that's right. That's I right. saw a couple of weeks ago. It's like, well, here years. you are. Eventually, you're going to find me. Funny. I think he has the record so far. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming tonight, Brian. Mm-hmm. Thank I really you. appreciate it and sharing your stuff. And, and also, it's too bad Rob couldn't make it, but we'll get him to come. Maybe the next time, we'll, maybe the two of you will talk. He had a commitment. Talk. I got an email, yeah. man. That's yeah. okay. So I want to thank uh, our listeners out there in, in uh, Internet Radio Land uh, for uh, listening in tonight mm-hmm. or listening in, in, our, in to the archives later if you're going to do that. And thanks to the studio audience. Thank you guys for coming tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a great show. We really appreciate it. Good information. Um, We'll email out reminders for next week's show sometime late next week. It seems to get later and later, depending upon the week, but we'll, we'll give it a shot to get it out on Thursday. <laughs> so remember to check Recovery Internet Radio. That's recoveryinternetradio.com mm-hmm. for all the archive shows and to sign up for our email reminder list. And remember, too, that we want to hear from you so we know where you are and who the heck is listening to the show. We really would like to know. So as always, live today. Love yourself and your neighbor, and together we'll trudge the happy road to destiny. And we hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll see you at 7 p.m. next Sunday night. Good night. That was fun.